The following audio is from Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in becoming a part of our extended family, visit midtowncolumbia.com slash partner. Well, good to be with you guys this morning. As Ant said, my name is Tim. Uh, man, before we get started, this is not I'm in my notes. Uh, seven, eight years ago now, uh, Mark, or should I say Deacon Mark, was my very first life group leader at Midtown. Uh, he actually left, handed over the group to me to help Ant uh, plant Midtown Two Notch way back when it was just a Bible study uh, at Benedict. Uh, and so just to see the slide that said family vacation five years is just a testament to the Lord's grace and kindness. So if we could just clap and praise the Lord for that. Um, it's, it's incredible to see what God has done and it continues to do and continue uh, to move in this neighborhood and through you all. And so, yeah, I'm just excited as I hear about uh, what the Lord is doing. Uh, well, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 11. Uh, as Alicia already read for us, so if you're not there already, grab a Bible. There should be some in the seat backs in front of you. We're going to be in John chapter 11, uh, looking at this I am statement. So uh, we're taking a couple weeks throughout the summer to talk about seven different I am statements of Jesus. These are statements that he made in the gospel of John that are him declaring things about himself. Because if we're going to be a people that claim to be Jesus-centered, to follow Jesus, then we want to worship and follow who he says that he is. Not some made-up version of Jesus that we like or that fits all of our preferences, but how he actually reveals himself in Scripture. And so we're taking seven weeks to do that. I think I have the best one this morning, and I think I have proof of that because Ant told me he's jealous that I get to preach it and not him. Uh, Before we get there, I'm going to let you guys in on one of my pet peeves. So one of my pet peeves recently, I don't know if you've been in this situation before, maybe you're the one who said it or you're on Twitter and you see it, but some kind of tragedy happens in our world, uh, some kind of suffering, some kind of injustice happens uh, in America, and people's response is, man, it's 2018, like haven't we moved past this? You guys ever been part of these conversations? Maybe you've said it yourself, where in response to something bad happening, you say, man, it's 2018, can't we just move on? Why that's one of my pet peeves is because wrapped up in that idea is that the world should naturally get more and more good, that we should naturally more and more as a world, as a society, move towards wholeness and goodness, but I don't think that I need to say anything to convince you this morning that it's 2018 and things aren't as they should be. There's still suffering in the world. There's still brokenness in the world. And Christianity actually says that's because of a different story, that things aren't naturally progressing towards goodness and wholeness. They're actually naturally progressing towards death. See, here's the, here's the story. God creates the world and everything in it, and he says that it's beautiful and that it's good. And then he creates the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, and he places them in the garden to work it and to cultivate it with the command that they're allowed to eat from every tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because Genesis 3.3 says if they eat it, they will die. But if you know the story, Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They're tempted by the serpent, and they sin against God. And because of that, death enters the world. And now we have what is often called the curse of sin. So because of the curse of sin, everything that lives on this earth moves towards death. Everything that lives on this earth moves towards decay. It's a very sad reality that now everything that lives also must die. The curse is so heavy that Romans 8, actually says that all creation, everything around us, groans as in pains of childbirth. That earth itself, because of the curse of sin, is growing like a mother giving birth to a child. That's how painful this curse is. Because of sin, all creation moves towards death. But not only that, sin also corrupts our hearts and our lives as well. That's why it's 2018 and we still have things like racial injustice 
economic inequality and greed, unjust wars and mass killings, over 60 school shootings just in 2017 alone, famine and world hunger. And it's not just on a systemic big picture level. We also see this daily suffering and brokenness in our lives with the sickness and death of those that we love. Abuse of all various types, emotional, physical, emotional suffering and wounds, baggage and hurt from our past, and the list goes on and on. I don't have to convince you that the world is not how it should be, that it's broken, that it hurts, that life this side of the Garden of Eden, post-Garden of Eden, is a painful one to live in. So the question for all of us this morning is, what do we do with the brokenness and suffering in our own lives and in the world around us? Does Jesus have anything to say about our suffering? Does he have anything to offer to real people who are experiencing real grief and real pain and real suffering? Does our faith actually give us something to hold on to? Does it help us not only get through our suffering, but actually triumph over our suffering? Does our faith do anything for us? Does Jesus offer anything for us? And this morning in John chapter 11, we're going to see a family in the midst of suffering, in the midst of grief, in the midst of pain, mourning the loss of one of their family members. And Jesus is going to step into the middle of that, and he's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. In the middle of this family's suffering, that's where we find this beautiful phrase, this hope-filled phrase. And the question he's going to land on that Delisha read in verse 26, he's going to ask all of us, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? So that's where we're going this morning. John chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. It reads, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So Jesus has become friends with this sibling group, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it, uh, just for clarification, verse 2 says this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is a different Mary. That's the point of the author, including that little bit about Mary anointing Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair. So this is a sibling group, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And it tells us that Lazarus has become sick. Verse 3. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So it's important. Jesus didn't float around the world with some emotional detachment, right? He wasn't just keeping everyone at arm's length because he was holier than thou or didn't get into the muck and, and grime of relationships, right? He actually dwelt with people. He had relationships with people. He loved people. He experienced day in and day out probably conflict, probably relational strife, probably all these different things that, he, that come with relationships. Jesus experiences that. He loves Mary, and he loves Martha, and he loves Lazarus. And chances are that they have heard that he's been healing people, that he's been performing these miracles across different towns, and so they send to him. They send to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus is setting something huge up for us here. He says, hey, this is going to be for a reason. This is going to be for God's glory. Notice, for the glory of God and the glory of the Son of God. So everything that's about to happen, everything we're about to see in this story, everything that's about to take place in this sibling group's lives is for God's glory. And that's important because that is important for us because nothing in our lives happens by chance or by fate. Right, you didn't wind up in Columbia, South Carolina, in the house that you're in, with the family that you're in, with the job that you have, because of some abstract thing called the universe. 
God sets you there. God placed you there. Nothing in your life up until this point and nothing until the day you die will happen by chance or by fate. God is doing something, and we see here that he's doing something for his glory, for his glory and for the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing. Everything in your life is set up to lead to God's glory, and that includes the hard That includes the bad, that includes the suffering, that includes the grief, that includes the pain. Everything in your life is set up for God to get glory. I'm going to prove that. Keep reading verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There it is again. He loves them so. Don't miss that. That so is, is huge here. It's acting as a connector phrase. It's saying, okay, because Jesus loves Mary and he loves Martha and he loves Lazarus, because he loves them, this is what's going to happen. Keep reading verse 6. Because he loves them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed. That's, that's huge. Because he loves them, he stays where he is two days longer. Two days longer, he stays in the place where he was. Jesus, who has the power to heal, who has proved it time and time again, who has healed people from sicknesses and disease and all these different ailments, and he stays where he is, and he doesn't go. He doesn't heal because he loves them. Because he loves them, he lets them go through suffering. Because he loves them, he lets them experience this pain. Because he loves them, he lets them hurt and mourn and grieve. And if you're like me, I think the reasonable question to ask is, God, that doesn't sound like love. What kind of love is that? What kind of love is it that lets them suffer, that lets them grieve, that lets them mourn? Jesus has already proven in past stories in the gospel that he can heal people just by saying words. He doesn't even have to show up. He just says something, and the centurion's daughter is healed. He just heals. Like that's just, Jesus doesn't even have to go, but he stays, and he lets Lazarus die because, verse 5 says, because he loves them. What kind of love is that? Scripture would say perfect love. Perfect love. It's perfect love that lets them go through it. It's perfect love that lets them suffer. It's perfect love that lets them grieve. Remember verse 4, right? The sickness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. What's the most loving thing that Jesus can do in this moment is to let Lazarus die so that God might get glory. Somehow, we don't know how, but somehow... That's how one pastor writes about these verses. He says, love labors and suffers to enthrall the beloved with what is infinitely and eternally satisfying, namely God. Love is always God-centered. What he's saying is the most loving thing you can do for anyone in your life is to make sure that they see the glory of God. It's to make sure that they witness it, that they're captured by it, that they're overwhelmed by how good and how marvelous and how glorious he is. The most loving thing you can do is put someone before God to see his glory. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So what these verses are saying is Jesus is not afraid to go because he's afraid of death. Jesus is not afraid of death. He's about to prove that he can conquer death. He's not afraid of going to Lazarus because he's afraid of dying. He's working something else out. He's doing something in the middle of this. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. 
The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Verse 15, in case you thought I was making it up earlier, he says, verse 15, and for your sake, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So there it is again, right? He says, I'm glad I wasn't there. Disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him. I'm glad I wasn't there to step in and solve it so that you may believe for their sake, for Mary and Martha's sake, so that they might believe. He's doing something behind the scenes. He's accomplishing something behind the scenes. But he finally goes, skip down to verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So they had other friends come from this other city to grieve with them, to mourn with them, to be with them during this time. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So finally, right, days after they first sent for Jesus, Martha hears that he's coming and she runs after him. And what are you expecting, right? What are you expecting to happen? She's chasing, finally, we sent for Jesus. He's here. What's he going to do? She runs after him. And verse 21, I think, is some of the most honest words. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, you could have done something. What's wrapped up in Martha's statement is she's saying, Jesus, why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you step in? You're supposed to be all-powerful. You're supposed to be all-knowing. You're supposed to be good and loving. Why didn't you do something when we sent for you? The reality of living on this side of the garden is all of us in our lives are going to reach points where we're asking that same question. Lord, why didn't you do something? God, why didn't you step in? Lord, why did you give me the job that I have? Lord, why did you give me this situation? I keep praying for you to fix it, and you're not fixing it. Why aren't you showing up? Lord, why are my kids so disobedient? Why is my spouse so hard to love? Lord, why did you let them get sick? Lord, why did you let them suffer? Lord, when are you going to show up? When are you going to fix this? When are you going to heal? Lord, why did you let them die? God, if you would have just been here, if you would have just been here, if you would have just done something, Where were you? Why didn't you do anything? It's part of living on this side of the garden with the curse of sin touching every inch of our lives. Suffering is real and it's going to come and we're going to be faced with these questions of, God, where were you and why didn't you do anything? Verse 22, Martha says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God God will give you. So Martha's holding on with faith, right? Jesus could have prevented this, but he didn't, so she holds on. She holds on. She says, where were you? But, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. It's my prayer for all of us as a church is that when we ask this question, Lord, where were you? By faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll also follow that up with, but even now I know. And even now I know that you can do something. You can step in. You can fix this. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So at first, this sounds like a pretty good answer, right? Like Martha's affirming there's going to be a resurrection. There will be this time that you will make things right. Uh, But most Bible scholars, and I would agree, that she's actually being pretty flippant and dismissive. So rather than being an affirming statement, what she's actually saying, what Martha is actually saying is, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I know that there's a future hope, but, but what about right now? Why didn't you do something right now? That's not fixing it right now. That's not helping the situation right now. When are you going to fix this? When are you going to do something? When are you going to step in? Don't give me these these flippant sayings about the future. Tell me now. Are you going to fix this now? We have to remember that God is working something else out. Everything that he's been doing behind the scenes, remember he's working this out for the glory of God and for the glory of the Son of God and because he loves Martha and he loves Mary and he loves Lazarus and so that his disciples would believe Jesus doesn't see life the way that we see life. He always sees the bigger picture. He always sees what's going on behind the scenes. And there's a lesson to be learned for this family in those days of waiting. There's a lesson to be learned before he steps in, before he solves it, before he relieves their suffering and their grief. There's lessons to be learned while Lazarus is still in the grave. No suffering is wasted in the kingdom of God. No pain is empty or hopeless. God is using all of it to accomplish his purposes. Look at what he says to her, verse 25. This is where we get to our I am statement. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you feel the the weight of the situation that he's saying this in, right? Here's Lazarus in the grave. Here's Martha running to him finally days after they sent for him. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying your hope is not in some future event or fixed circumstance. Your hope is not in a better situation, a more fulfilling marriage, a better job, more money, better health, cooler city, a larger house, a perfect life group, or super obedient kids. Your hope is not in a pain-free, struggle-free life. Your hope is not in having no sickness, no pain, or no heartache. You are never promised anywhere in Scripture that if you follow Jesus, you will get all or any of those things in this life. You're not. But Jesus' goal is not for Martha and Mary to be pain-free in this life. It's to teach them something through the pain. It's to accomplish something through the pain. It's to work something out through the pain. So what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to get Martha and Mary's hope off of their earthly circumstances being fixed and onto him. Onto the one who can truly save. He's saying your hope is in me. I am the resurrection. I am your resurrection. You see it's a perspective problem. Jesus is trying to get Martha's eyes off of the closed tomb of her brother and onto the future empty tomb of her Savior. Onto Jesus. Onto Jesus who's going to conquer it all. Onto Jesus who's the resurrection. Onto Jesus who's true life. You see Martha is going to see her brother raised from the grave. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus and then he's going to die again. Like all of us are, like all of us as humans will. Death is a certainty for all of us. It's inevitable. All of creation is heading towards death and decay, and yet Jesus comes with an offer of life, of hope. Keep reading verse 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, so it's a physical death, though he die physically, yet shall he live. It's a spiritual life. Yet shall he live Verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is talking spiritually there. If you live and believe in Jesus, you will never die. He's saying if you trust in me, if you believe in me, you will still die a physical death, and yet you will live. True life. 
through the cross and the empty tomb. Christ not only defeated our sin, he not only defeated our enemy Satan, but he also defeated death. Death no longer has the final say. It's no longer the thing to be most feared. It's not the end of the story for all who are in Christ. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say he's just bringing resurrection and life. He says he is the resurrection and the life. This is what that means. Jesus is the embodiment of the undoing of the curse of sin. That all of the curse that we talked about, where everything in creation is moaning as in childbirth, moving toward death and decay, in the person of Jesus, we have the undoing of all of it. The one who is going to set it all right, make it all good again. He is the hope for the entire world, for all of the brokenness, all of the suffering, all of the pain. For all who believe and live in Christ, who trust in Christ, who trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins, who cling to him for life and hope, death is not the end of your story. It's not the end of your story. In fact, scripture says death actually serves us now. As Christians, death actually serves us because through death, we move to experiencing fullness of life like never before. Through death, that's where we experience Jesus. That's where we go to meet with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 says that death has been swallowed up in victory. It's been defeated. Death is done with. Never again. Our future is a glorious resurrection. We'll be resurrected. We'll be made whole. The power of these verses is that not only is God resurrecting and redeeming people, he's actually resurrecting and redeeming all of creation. He's actually moving all of creation towards wholeness and goodness and back to perfection. Jesus is undoing all of the curse of sin. We see this in Revelation 21. This is a beautiful passage where John is looking and glimpsing what our future is going to be like as Christians. What our, our future hope, our future home is going to look like. First one of uh, Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The earth that we currently live in, this earth that is cursed because of sin, is going to pass away. It's going to die. There will be a, a new heaven and a new earth. Earth, creation itself, is going to be resurrected. There'll be no more living in brokenness, no more living in suffering, no more living in pain and grief. You see, this world is not our home. Scripture throughout calls Christians uh, strangers and sojourners in a foreign land. We are citizens of another kingdom. We're citizens of another home. This world is not our home, and God in his providence would use our pain and our suffering and our grief to remind us that we are citizens of another world. We are citizens of another kingdom, that we await a better home. It gets even better. If you keep reading in Revelation 21, the story gets even brighter. Verse 4, he, he being Jesus, this is Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed Away, Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne, King Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new. I need that in my life. I need some new in my life. I need some things to be made new. So Revelation promises, it says, there will be a new resurrected creation where pain is a thing of the past, where hatred, oppression, and greed are things of the past, where school shootings and famine and hunger are things of the past, where all of our scars 
and our wounds are things of the past, where sickness is a thing of the past, hospital visits and grief is a thing of the past because death itself is a thing of the past. You see, as a Christian, our suffering is not the end of the story because it was not the end of King Jesus' story. The cross was not the end of the story. The tomb, the empty tomb is the end of the story. Jesus, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, ruling and reigning forever over a perfect creation that he will make new. That's the end of the story. And all of us getting to dwell with him, singing as Delisha prayed, holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain, who scripture says is worthy. He's worthy to receive it all. All of the glory and all of the praise. That's the end of the story. The end of the story is not the grave. The end of the story is the new heavens and the new earth and worshiping Jesus. One day he's going to take us to be with him, resurrected people, praising our resurrected Savior and a resurrected creation. So exciting. I can't wait for that. I need that in my life. And the question that Jesus asked Martha is the question for all of us this morning. And this is where I want to end. Verse 26, he looks at Martha. He says, I am the resurrection in the life. If you live and believe in me, you will never die. And then he looks at her and he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you cling to it? Does it change you? Does it affect you? Are we like Martha saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I know there's a resurrection. I, I know there's eternal life, but you're not fixing stuff right now. Or are we clinging to him as the one who has all power and all control, trusting that he's working something else out? See, there's a difference between coming to a mental awareness and understanding that this is our future and actually letting that affect how we live in the day-to-day life. There's a difference between saying, yeah, I know Jesus is the future and I know I'm going to have a resurrected home with him and actually letting that affect how we live everything else. See, knowing Jesus is our future should affect how we work, how we parent, how we dwell in friendships and relationships, how we date, how we live, how we interact with our spouse. In every area of our life, knowing Jesus is the end, knowing a resurrection with him is the end should affect all of life, all of it. I'm a big uh, Golden State Warriors fan. Uh, don't worry, I was, a, I was a fan before they drafted Steph Curry, so you can get out of here with all the bandwagon mess. Uh, I was a fan before the color change, 10 plus years. You're welcome. Uh, a few weeks ago, they played in Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals. If you're not uh, an NBA fan, here's what that means. They were one game away from playing for the championship. So if they won, they're playing for the championship. If they lose, they're going home and the season's over. This is how I watch Game 7. What's going to happen? Why would Kevin Durant shoot that shot? Why are we going to turn the ball over? Why is Steph Curry not pat? Like, that's how I'm watching Game 7. I have no idea how it's going to end, and I'm freaking out because it doesn't look good, and they're playing a really good team in the Houston Rockets, and so I'm just pacing back and forth. My wife, praise the Lord, has already gone to bed, and so I'm just walking the whole living room back and forth, like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Now, if I turn on that game, this is how I would watch it. Kick back in the recliner, pop a little popcorn, drink a little soda, and hang out, right? Because I know the end. Here's the thing. Knowing the end affects how we live every aspect of our lives. It matters. It, it changes us. Knowing the end, we take a breath. Things are still hard. Suffering is still real. Grief is still real. Pain is still real. But we approach it all differently because we know that we are conquerors through Jesus Christ. That we're not only a people that get through things, but we're a people that triumph over it. We triumph over all of our suffering, all of our grief, all of our pain. Jesus' invitation for us this morning is to trust him before we get to the end. To trust him before we get there. 
floored this when I was reading this. The Lord showed it to me. Jesus is asking Martha to believe while her brother is still in the grave. That's wild. Lazarus has not gotten up yet. We know the end of the story, so it's easy to to read into and be like, yeah, he's going to raise Lazarus. It's going to be fine. He's asking Martha this question while Lazarus is still in the grave, while the tomb is still full, while the hearts are still broken, while the tears are still on the face, while the weeping is still real. He's asking her then, do you believe now? Not after I fix it. Do you believe now? What he's asking is, he's asking her, are you a person of hope? Here's what, here's what hope is. Hope is having eyes that see the future before we get there. Eyes that see what's going to come before we get there. Do you believe that Christ is the end before you get to the end? You have hope. And hope doesn't mean some abstract feeling of happiness or joyfulness. Hope is a command from God, and it's an act of obedience. So here's what hope says. Hope says, even if everything seems lost right now, even if it all seems too overwhelming, even if the darkness will not lift, hope says, I'm going to keep looking at Jesus, my resurrection. Hope says, when my eyes start to wander, I'll set them back on Jesus, my resurrection. Hope says, when my doubt starts to creep in, I'm going to ask you, my brother and my sister, to help me set my eyes back on Jesus, my resurrection. Hope says, when I just don't want to face another day because the grief is too real and the suffering is too strong, I'm going to pray and I'm going to seek the Holy Spirit to again set my eyes back on Jesus, my resurrection. That's what hope is daily, over and over again. God, I don't see the end. I don't want to believe the end. I don't want to trust the end, but I know you, and I know you're good enough, so I need your help. Help my unbelief. That's what hope says. Hope says, help me. Help me when I can't believe it. Help me when I want to believe that my suffering is in vain. Help me believe that it's not. When I want to believe that all hope is lost, help me believe that it's not. If you're, uh, if you're new here this morning, maybe this is your first time in church or your 20th time, but you're still just wrestling with what is Christianity about? Who is, who is Jesus? What does this mean for me? Can I have this offer of, of true life, of, of resurrection, of future victory in Christ? Jesus would actually ask you the same question that he asks all of us. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life? You see, you, see, you don't get a resurrection to eternal life without Jesus. You don't get one without the other. But his promise is is good, and it's trustworthy, and his invitation is for you. Do you believe God is where you find resurrection? Do you believe God is your hope for a future? Are you hoping that you can do enough good to outweigh your bad and then hopefully make it to some place called heaven, or do you trust the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? I am the resurrection. I am your resurrection. You see, the Bible would say that all of us are just like Lazarus, that Lazarus' story is our story. Ephesians 2 says, before Christ, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, that our story is not we're bad and we need to do a few more good things. Our story is that we're dead and we need the resurrecting power of Jesus to make our hearts new, to wake us up, to bring us from death to life. I don't know if you know anything about this, but dead people don't make themselves alive. You don't do it on your own. You need Jesus. And the good news is, just like he stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, he stands outside the tomb of your heart calling to you, roll away the stone. Roll it away. Come alive. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Wake up. Come alive. 
That's the, the offer for all of us. And it's my prayer for all of us that we would respond the way that Martha responds in John eleven twenty seven. 27. Responding in faith. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the conqueror, the king, the resurrecting savior. I believe that you're the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this in such a way that it affects everything about your life? We're going to respond with a chance to profess that belief. Uh, When we gather together and take communion, we're taking bread, which represents Jesus' body, and, and juice, which represents his blood. His body that didn't just hang on a cross, but went into the tomb and then rose again victorious. His body that now dwells at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. And his body that will one day return again to claim all who are his and who are trusting in his promises. All who are waiting on him and looking for him. So as we take communion, as you take bread and you dip it in the juice, remember Jesus' body, not only broken on the cross, but resurrecting and reigning. If you're not a Christian here, uh, this is one of the only things we do that we would ask you not to participate in, simply because you'd be saying something is true about yourself that's not yet. But the offer's there. Our invitation to you would be to not take communion, but to take Christ, to believe on him and to trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection eternal. Let's pray. Father God, we, we have nothing apart from your resurrection in your life. God, we are, are dead. God, we're, we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. We're, we're dead in our, our wrongs, Lord. But you are good and you send Jesus not to leave us in the grave, but to, to call out to us, roll away the stone and come alive. Lord, I pray for anyone in the room who doesn't trust that, who doesn't believe that, who's just asking questions, Lord, would you, would you press on them even this morning? We, we know that your arm is not too short to, stay, to save, and we know that your spirit wants to move and to work, Lord, and only by a power of you, God, will any of us come alive. Lord, we pray that in the midst of all of our suffering, in the midst of all of our grief and all of our pain and all of our sorrow, Lord, you would help us to be a people that trust you, that trust that you're working something else out, that you're doing something else, that you are are doing something for your glory, and that is the most loving thing you can do for us, God. Would you show us your glory in the midst of all of our suffering and grief? Would you help our unbelief? Would you help our inability to see the end? Would you help us to be a people of hope, people marked by hope, people that live differently because of the hope we have that this world is not our home, but we are citizens and saints, and we await a better kingdom a kingdom with you ruling and reigning forever, and we get to sing and worship you and enjoy you and enjoy one another, Lord. Until we reach that day, would you help us to be steadfast and hold on with hope? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.